0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 50, The Second Sino Japanese War, Part 1, Background. This week, I would like to remind everyone that you can find the podcast on Twitter at World War II Pod and Facebook at History of the Second World War. The podcast also has a Discord server if you'd like to come hang out with other listeners just like you, as well as myself, which I hope you see as a positive. If you were to ask anyone when the Second World War started, and if you were to ask on that Discord server I just mentioned, I think it's safe to assume that the answer would be 1939 with the invasion of Poland. That event would bring in many other nations into the war against Germany. Obviously, this is a very valid view of events, and I'm not going to say that 1939 is a wrong answer. But here in the introduction to this series on the Second Sino-Japanese War, I would like to present the case for why another possible answer revolves around events in China. July 1937 is probably the best date, or the date with the best claim, which is the traditional date applied to the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War with the Marco Prolo Bridge incident near Peking, and then the Battle of Shanghai, which would greatly escalate the fighting happening shortly thereafter. You might even be able to make the case that the date would be earlier, perhaps with the Manchurian incident, which occurred in 1931, and which will be discussed in this episode. However, I'm generally inclined to not consider that earlier date, mostly due to the lulls in the fighting which would occur in the intervening years, and the fact that for much of that time, China was in what could far more accurately be described as a civil war, rather than focusing on fighting with Japan. The reason I find 1937 to be such an intriguing option is not even really rooted in just the, the fact that a war started that would not end until after the Second World War or end with the Second World War in 1945. And that is obviously something to consider, but just because two conflicts are occurring at the same time does not mean they are related, or that later conflicts are related to the first. Instead, I think the most important consideration is why the nations were fighting. When we get to 1941, the Japanese and Chinese will be fighting for the same reasons with the same goals as they had been when their conflict started in 1937, and those goals, while perhaps shifting in geographic place, were ultimately consistent in all the years of the Second Sino-Japanese War from 1937 to 1935. The Japanese were trying to force the Chinese government under Chiang Kai-shek to the negotiating table with the goal of greatly expanding their influence in China. The Chinese were mostly just trying to survive. These were the same in 1937, as they were in 1941, as they were in 1945, by which point the Chinese theater was an integral part of the Second World War. Given the amount of resources that the Japanese would pour into China before and after 1937, it would also greatly influence events in the Pacific theater. It is this continuity of purpose throughout this time period that I think is convincing. Otherwise, the only other option is to either reject that the Second Sino-Japanese War was part of the Second World War, which probably should not even be considered, or a line must be drawn somewhere on the timeline where there is little justification to do so. Again, I do not fully endorse the idea that everyone should start saying the Second World War started in 1937 and that we should edit Wikipedia or whatever, but I do think it is an interesting idea that prompts discussion about how Euro-focused much of the 1930s history generally is for English-speaking nations. Our purpose here today is not to debate what date should be put on the Second World War's Wikipedia page, and instead to discuss the Second Sino-Japanese War, a conflict which would definitely begin in July 1937, and which would continue and only escalate until the end of the Second World War in 1945. Over that time, more than 95 million Chinese civilians would become refugees. Somewhere above 15 million Chinese would be killed. The Japanese would suffer 2.5 million military casualties all very large numbers, for what would be a massive conflict. I'm going to make a comparison here, and before anybody gets angry, it's a very narrow comparison, hold your emails, but I would compare the fighting in China and European Russia, between Germany and Russia. In both cases, Germany and Japan would attack with the belief in a quick victory, but they soon found themselves in a situation in which one of the fronts of the conflict that they were involved in could absorb almost an infinite amount of military resources. And no matter how many resources were invested, the result was never victory. In both cases, this massive investment of time, material, and men into fighting one specific enemy left them completely unable to meet attacks elsewhere. Again, this is a very narrow comparison. They are very different wars, uh, but I think it works. Over the next several weeks, we will be chronicling events in China, starting with the Manchurian incident in 1931, and then through the Battle of Shanghai, and ending with the Nanjing Massacre. We will bring events in China up to the end of 1937, at which point we will leave China for a bit to discuss events elsewhere in the world. Also, just a, a disclaimer up front here, I'm, I'm going to do my best on pronunciation, but I'm sure there will be problems. Hopefully it gets better as we go along. But if we're going to chronicle the events in China during the late 1930s, we have to briefly rewind to the 1920s. Before we dive into events, though, we need to introduce an individual that will be in our story until the end of the war in 1945, that being Chiang Kai-shek. In 1925, and with the death of Sun Yat-sen, there was something of a succession crisis in China, and it would only be in June 1926 that Chiang, as the head of the National Revolutionary Army, would begin to assert something similar to control over a wide area of China. However, Chiang's government would not be fully established until 1928, and only after a short hiatus from his leadership position in 1927, during which he married into a very financially influential family from Shanghai and exiled his first wife to America. This new government would be set up with its capital in Nanjing, and over the next decade it would continue to grow in its central control over various areas of China. There's always an important footnote on the Chinese government during this period though, and, and this is true up until the 1940s, because there were serious limits on the ability of the government in Nanjing to project power, and limits to their ability to influence events in several areas. To start off with, there were almost constant small civil wars happening. There there were some very large civil wars, as well as coup attempts and other internal squabbles. Key to all of these events was the relatively high level of local autonomy experienced in many provinces of China that could best be described as being led by warlords. For example, in Manchuria, Zhang Zhulang, known as the young marshal in the West, would be able to have relative freedom in his actions with little ability of Chang and the government in Nanjing to influence those actions. This situation was replicated in other areas as well, especially in the periphery. Even closer to Nanjing, for example in Sichuan, the local military leader, Lu Zhang, was deeply protective of his autonomy, and this would cause serious problems during the coming wars with the Japanese. Early in the conflict, there would be instances of support not being provided to Chang, specifically because various regional leaders believed that it would weaken them too much, leaving them open to falling completely under the control of the central government in Nanjing. Even with these difficulties, Chang's power would grow, and near the end of 1930, he would finally feel secure enough to launch what would be known quite ominously as the extermination or encirclement campaigns. There would eventually be five such campaigns, and they would all be targeted at the Chinese communists. We will not be covering each of these campaigns in detail, uh, but in general, the course of the first four campaigns would follow a template. Chang and the Nationalists would target a specific area of communist strength. For example, the Kangxi uh, Soviet, based in the Kangxi and Fujian provinces, would, would be a primary target. And they would launch an attack on the Soviet with a a number of troops that they felt was required for victory, usually about twice as many as would be available to the communists. Then when they attacked, they would generally fail to achieve their objectives due to the difficulties of coordination and attack in enemy territory and against a highly motivated enemy. Each of these failures would, instead of destroying the Soviets, make them stronger due to the captured weapons and supplies. The fourth campaign would see an attack against King of 154,000 men, with an additional 240,000 defending the borders around the area. And even with this large advantage over 65,000 communist uh, soldiers, the result would still be failure after eight months of fighting. With the fifth campaign, which would begin in September 1933, there would be a change in tactics. Chang and the Nationalists would have an overwhelming number of troops, 900,000 or so. But instead of marching them into communist territory, they instead would create a defensive belt around communist-controlled territory. Then they blockaded any supplies from moving into the province, and those trapped within began to starve. This would result in around a million civilian deaths, and the communist military forces slowly wilting away, without their 60,000 military deaths. Eventually, communist leaders would make the decision that they needed to find a way out of the encirclement, an incredibly dangerous prospect because it meant fleeing without any guarantee of there being a safe harbor nearby. And in fact, it would be a a very long way to go before they would find one. They would leave behind anyone who was incapable of walking under their own power, as well as a 16,000 strong rearguard. They would attempt to break through the nationalist defenses in the southwest of the province in October 1934 with around 86,000 soldiers, Communist Party officials, and civilians. Less than half of that number would be able to actually escape the nationalist cordon, and those that were left were only at the beginning of what would become known as the Long March. Over the next year, they would travel 6,000 miles before eventually arriving in the Shaanxi province in northern China, at which point only 10,000 of those that had started the march would reach its end. The legacy of the Long March and its place in the foundation of What would eventually become the Chinese Communist Party under the leadership of Mao Zedong is a large topic that we won't be diving into too deep, at least for now. What is important is that even with all of this animosity, this violence, and obvious ideological differences between the nationalists and the communists, which would result in the deaths of literally millions of people, in 1937 they would still agree to work together in a united front against Japan. That's how much they hated chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com. no purchase necessary plus. hey there i'm dylan lewis one of the hosts of motley fool money speaking of the Japanese, before we jump into events, we need to talk about why the Japanese were even in China in the first place. The core of the disagreements between the two nations was the fact that the Japanese considered themselves to be the dominant regional power, while the Chinese did not recognize that power in the way that the Japanese wanted. This tension had been ongoing for decades before the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War, and had only been growing as Japanese control and influence in northern China and Manchuria had continued to grow during the 1920s and 30s. This influence was increased and nurtured due to the economic realities of Japan's position on the world stage. It wanted to be a great power. It wanted to be able to have a military to match the other great powers, especially the Western nations. However, within the Japanese home islands and their overseas possessions in the Pacific, the raw materials to make that happen simply did not exist. They were heavily dependent on imports from the United States, which would create a painful moment after the stock market crash in 1929, and then the United States and other nations suddenly erecting strong tariff barriers during the Great Depression, which greatly reduced international trade, including trade with Japan. This economic dependence on other nations increased the support within Japan, in the military, the government, and the populace, to pursue a more autarchic approach to economic policy, or a push to an economy where Japan enjoyed much greater overall control. This shift towards economic self-sufficiency did not result in a reduction in the goals for a large and powerful military, and Japan simply did not have access to the raw materials to make those military goals a reality. They didn't have the coal, the iron, the oil, or, or a whole list of other resources. And so they looked around them to find ways to secure those supplies. In northern China, and more specifically in Manchuria, they found an opportunity. During the 1920s, they would invest heavily in Manchuria, with Japanese businesses and investments skyrocketing, as a way to try and utilize the resources available in the region. In many ways, they began to treat Manchuria as a colony. In the grand Western imperial tradition, they expected that their investments and their control of the region would grow, and they would see the appropriate payoff. When this did not occur, they increased military pressure in Manchuria, and this increased tension with local leaders. This then came into collision with the growing belief among the Chinese leadership that they had to start pushing back harder against foreign intervention and control in China, a foreign intervention that had been quite harmful to China for over a century. A key moment in this disagreement is when the Chinese government in the South attempted to nationalize all of the silver in China. Uh, Silver at this time being the currency used in China or the basis for the currency used in China. But the northern banks, under Japanese influence, refused to send their silver south. These kinds of disagreements between the Japanese-controlled north and the Chinese officials in the south would increase tensions. And beyond the economic sphere, there was also serious influence by Japanese military officers in Japanese actions On the mainland or in China. The Japanese military, and specifically the army, when it came to China, favored a very aggressive policy. They felt that their position as a great power justified the use of force to assert their position within China, and they used the actions of Western great powers as justification. Other nations with imperial holdings had been waging wars against those holdings to maintain control for basically the entire span of human history, and the Japanese claimed that they were simply doing the same thing. But instead of getting into the demands, when the Japanese pushed, the Chinese pushed back. And so the Japanese would push harder. This created an environment where the only option that the Japanese military could see was one of escalation. More men, more fighting, capturing more territory. These would be the constant factors in Japanese strategy which would culminate in their largest offensives of the Second Sino-Japanese War which wouldn't occur until 1944. Throughout this entire series and for all of our discussions of the war in China, the theme is one of constant escalation. What began as economic expansion as a way of financing and supporting Japanese rearmament and military expansion became a military campaign that seemed to have an almost infinite ability to absorb and destroy those same military resources. This brings us to the start of that military escalation and the Manchurian Incident. After the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese had been provided with a controlling interest in the South Manchurian Railway Company, with this controlling interest used as an excuse to base Japanese military units in Manchuria to protect the railway, units that would greatly expand in size over the years, eventually becoming known as the Kwantung Army. The basis for the Japanese position in Manchuria was expanded based on treaties that had been signed with Zhang Zhulin, uh, the lord lord in Manchuria for most of the 1920s it was also expanded as part of the 21 demands that the japanese forced the chinese to sign during the first world war all of these treaties provided the japanese with many privileges and dictated some of the ways in which the japanese could control local actions because of these privileges the japanese continued to pour money into manchuria and after 1926 of all Japanese foreign investment found its way to Manchuria. This investment was already seeing a huge return by 1930, with two-thirds of Japanese coal and half of Japanese cast-iron imports coming from Manchuria. Along with this, there was always some disagreements between what the Japanese thought they controlled and what local Chinese leaders believed they controlled. For example, the Chinese railway companies were unwilling to link up with the South Manchurian Railway when the Japanese believed that they were entitled to such a link-up. There was also a growing tide of Japanese immigration into the area, which increased Japanese control in what was seen as a very dangerous way. These tensions would boil over in 1931 with the Manchurian Incident, an incident in no small part instigated by the Japanese themselves. Local Japanese military leaders and and the leaders back in Tokyo never really agreed on the best course of action in Manchuria, The local military leaders wanted to take a far more firm hand with the local Chinese, with leaders in Tokyo being very concerned about such actions resulting in a Western response or an international response. To try and create the scenario where military force was warranted, the Japanese military, during June 1931, would begin a series of provocations with the explicit intention of escalating relations with the Chinese to the point of open conflict. These escalations included actions like using police violence against Chinese peasants who were squabbling with Korean peasants in the area over irrigation rights. At the same time in China, a growing resentment towards the Japanese control resulted in several boycotts of Japanese goods. At this time, the threat posed by the Japanese was not the unifying factor it would later become. Instead, during 1931, the inability of Chang and the KMT to deal with Japanese aggression would serve to fracture support which would only encourage further Japanese incidents. All of these problems, provocations, and disagreements would result in the full-scale invasion of Manchuria by the Japanese army in September 1931. This was an action controlled by the Kwantung army and was not fully controlled by the Japanese government in Tokyo. In fact, months later, the Japanese cabinet would fall over the fact that it could not get the army to conform with its wishes for China. After the invasion, the Chinese government would officially appeal to the League of Nations for help. You may remember this event from our earlier episodes on the League of Nations. But the most that the League would do was to set up a commission to investigate. This would be the first of many examples of the powerlessness of the League during the 1930s, a problem that would accelerate its demise. The invasion would also cause political havoc among the Chinese leadership. And China itself would be left without a government for a month during the height of the crisis, due to disagreements on how to proceed. The reason for this lack of a government was because Chang would use this moment to stage a... a bit of a power play. And in mid-December, he would resign to prove the point that nobody else could act as a unifying figure in Chinese politics. And after a month of disagreements, Chiang would be proven correct, because he would come back in January 1932. On March 1st, the Japanese declared the creation of Manchukuo, a nation outside of China and led by a former Chinese emperor, which would then go on to function as a Japanese puppet state. The already high level of Japanese investment would only increase, with massive spending on infrastructure, rail, road, telegraph, electricity generation, and many other areas, they would all see massive expansion. This was followed by investments in industry and mining, with the hopes of using Manchuko as a base for the continuing growth of the Japanese military. Eventually, it would become the most industrialized area in all of Eastern Asia outside of the Japanese home islands. The loss of Manchuria caused the Chinese government to further harden its resolve to stand up to the Japanese, although it would be some time before that resolve would result in open conflict. This would be the point where the National Defense Planning Council for China was established to first determine the state of the Chinese military and then to put in place programs that would eventually result in the Chinese troops that would be so important to the fighting in 1937. Before we end today, let's take a brief moment to look at the international response to the events in China outside of the League of Nations. Much of the Japanese government's hesitancy to commit to expansion in China was based on concerns uh, about an international response, a response that would not really end up happening. Both the League of Nations and other interested Western nations did not really do anything after the invasion and establishment of Manchukuo. In fact, relations with some nations, like Great Britain, would only get better in the early 1930s. The British would start discussions for proposing a non-aggression pact with Japan, essentially ceding all territory north of the Great Wall to China in exchange for guarantees of Chinese territory to the south. This agreement would not happen due to various political developments, but it was seriously discussed at a time after the establishment of Manchukuo. The failure of other nations to respond to the Manchurian incident would embolden the Japanese military, who seemed to now have a free hand in China, at least for the time being. This also further undermined the ability of the civilian government in Tokyo to control events in China, with their previously cautious approach proving to be unnecessary and their concerns unwarranted. This would lay the groundwork for the constant expansion in the years that would follow, expansion constantly and consistently justified by military necessity.